Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Andrew Whitehead. Andrew is Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University, and recent author of American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. You can get connected with Andrew and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Andrew Whitehead with me, and Andrew, you are Associate Professor of Sociology at Indiana University, Purdue University in Indianapolis. Uh, and uh, by the way, I used to go to Indianapolis all the time because I went to seminary there, and I just was telling you that a couple months ago, I was in Indianapolis for a work thing. So I feel like Indianapolis is sort of like a second home. I often describe it as like the most mediocre city in america (laughs) and it's like embraced in that way like people from indianapolis love how mediocre indianapolis is am i am i like wrong there it feels like that though right at least no no it is so vanilla that like when companies want to get a handle on like what might most americans in the median think they come here and just see what people here think and then they're like well for most people anywhere else it'll it'll hit so it's like the uh, chain restaurant of cities in the U.S. So, it, oh, that's a great way to describe it. It totally yeah. feels like an Applebee's of the U.S. Totally. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's fine. You know, you'll find something here you like, but it'll never be that great. So, yeah, I I love it. Well, anyway, with all that said, uh, that you're associate professor, but you also just recently released an incredible book called American Idolatry: How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. An unbelievable book. Super excited to chat about it. But before we dive into it, who right. is Andrew Whitehead to Andrew Whitehead? <laughs> That's a great question. Besides um, having one of the coolest last names ever, because, I mean, I bet at least somewhere down the line, you're at least related to Alfred North Whitehead, who I'm a I'm big gonna, fan of. I'm going to claim it. I'm going to claim it. I don't know for sure. I need to dig into that. But yeah, that that works for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's so funny. I think really too with the book, part of it is kind of this personal journey. So who is Andrew to Andrew Whitehead? I think right now it's so much of it is recognizing the journey. And we'll talk more about this of where where we came from, where we are now, how much we know and really don't know, and and just looking back on all that. So yeah, for me right now, it's a lot of the work uh, of yeah, writing and and being an academic, but then to just kind of walking through family stuff because I have some kids with special needs and disabilities. And so all of that just feels like this big mix Mm. that, you know, is kind of unsettling so much of what I was handed growing up where it's like, here are the answers, here's the tidy box and it'll all work out. And then when it starts to unravel or, or not work out, 
you know, then it becomes really clear. So that's the best I can describe it. It just feels like this muddled mess that I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what's next. So, and sometimes people call that life. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but not, not, not the folks. Yeah. I think that that handed us a lot of, right. Or at least me, what I was given. Yeah. So just finding that out and trying to find my way. So yeah, the journey, it just feels like it's yeah, the journey. Totally. Well, let's talk about the book. Uh, before we dive into the contents of the yeah. book, I want to hear a little bit more, just kind of the the writing process for you while writing the book. Uh, is this your first book, by the way? It is my second. Yeah. So the first book I co-authored with Sam Perry oh, that's called right. Taking America Back for God. So that was our kind of, you know, it's to a broad audience, but more of an academic accessible academic book around Christian nationalism. Right. right. That's right. I forgot about that, that book. No so way. with that said, then yeah. what was something that you learned maybe like kind of factually in writing this book that you didn't know before? Uh, you know, obviously you're a sociologist, so you're looking at lots of data all the time. You're looking at right. history, all those sorts of things. Was there anything in the research for this book that came up where you're like, wow, I had no idea about that before. Obviously writing a book about Christian nationalism, something that you've already written about before, you probably have yeah. a good sense of like where you're going with this book. And you probably aren't like too surprised by a lot of things when you're researching but was there anything in the research for this book that was a little surprising for you yeah that's always such a good question and i think you know for me it's kind of like when we look back so for sociologists trying to get a really good handle on where we are now what people believe what is kind of influencing how they see their social worlds how they interact within them we have to look back and know our history to gain that context. And so, yeah, like like you said, a lot of it is reading history, but that so so many times feels like peeling an onion where there's always more layers. And so, or like, like an ogre. Yeah, totally, exactly. And so, when you know, looking back or continuing to read, and just for me, I think it, it always felt like there were more layers. So, the doctrine of discovery. And, and it's not just like when the U.S. was founded in this narrative as a Christian nation, but like even 200 years before that, like how mm. those theologies were being created and, and how impactful those were and how, quote unquote, good Christians were using their faith to make sense of how and why they could slaughter Native American people and they could enslave African people and, and just making sense of all that. So so many times it's just another story, you know, like the, the Pequot war and hearing, you know, reading quotes of what Europeans were saying and how this was, this was God's design. We needed to slaughter them. I think those always are surprising. That always is like, goodness gracious, like mm -hmm. here yet again, we see more evidence of this. So I think that's mm -hmm. probably one thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Was there anything that you learned about yourself as you wrote the book that you didn't know about before? Uh, again, it's not your first book, but I would imagine something comes up in the book writing process where you're like, didn't know I had that in me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think in some ways it's kind of like a, like a coin. So there, the the good side, I think what I found out is like, hey, I can do this. You know, I can because this book is I make normative claims in it. So that's moving beyond, you know, the data like we can't gather data on. Um, is this the helpful or, or a better interpretation of the gospel, right? But in the book, I make, you know, hey, here's here's at least one expression of the gospel that I think is less harmful. So knowing that I could write a book like this and kind of make those claims and 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 do it in a way that hopefully is engaging, I think that was like a, a good thing I learned. The opposite side of that, and this was a really funny thing, and I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but 
I was writing the book and anybody that, you know, writes knows that you have really low moments where you're just like, this is all crap. Like, I, I don't know how this is ever going to come together, all these things. And, you know, I would look back to writing my first book with Sam and think, oh, this co-authoring was so much better because I could just write and then send it to him and then he would work with it. And it was this wonderful experience. But then in the midst of writing this book, I looked back at journal like entries that I had written and I was like, oh, everything I write sucks. Sam hates everything I send him. I know this is horrible. You know, all these things that I was saying to myself with this book, I said then too. And so the big thing I found out about myself is that no matter what, I think in the moment I'm doing a horrible job, <laughs> but I just have to keep pushing through and, and it'll, it'll happen and it'll work. So that's the big thing I found out. Um, so that was pretty funny to me. I would imagine a lot of like creative people in general probably experience that, you know, whether it's musicians so. or, art, you know, some sort of artist, uh, you know, whatever it might, you know, certainly people who are authoring books, it, it just feels like a very common experience where it's like, <laughs> this feels like just total and utter shit. Yeah. But when you send it out to the world to, you know, for the world to engage and then you right. realize like, oh, wait it must not have been that like terrible if other people yeah, seem to really like it. Totally. And, and I mean, even later, like once the book's coming together and I would read it, there were times where it's like, Oh, you know what? This is pretty good. Like I'm, I'm proud of this. Like I'm ready for other people to read this. And I've, I've heard that too. Like you said, other authors, you know, it's this just up and down, up and down. So yeah, just trying to continue that on where it isn't just always <laughs> success and like beauty, but. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, your favorite thing to talk about, Christian nationalism. <laughs> yeah. So before talking about the dangers of Christian nationalism, which is obviously what the book is all about. Yeah. How are you defining Christian nationalism in this book? I, obviously, there's probably lots of different ways that people define Christian nationalism. And that might be part of the really difficult part of talking about Christian nationalism, because yeah. the definition seems so amorphous and ne not necessarily really agreed upon. So it's like, how are we going to talk about something that like people really don't necessarily agree that we're all talking about the same thing and everything. So anyway, yeah. as you're talking about in the book, how are you talking about or defining Christian nationalism? Yeah. So I define Christian nationalism as a desire to see a very particular expression of Christianity privileged in the public sphere and that the American U.S. government vigorously defends this expression of Christianity as the organizing framework for society. So you know, one of the things you're pointing out, which is true, is there's folks that will say, oh, what's the definition? Or nobody has one. Nobody's looked at this. And so I push back on that a little bit in the book where social scientists, we've kind of provided an empirically supported definition where it isn't just us saying this is what we think it is. But as we gather data and survey data, we see that this is what the American public is thinking about when it's thinking through this cultural framework of Christian nationalism. And so there's all this cultural baggage that comes with it. But essentially, again, the important point is this particular expression of Christianity, which is culturally, politically, religiously conservative, um, ethnocentric, has elements of authoritarian authoritarianism in it and a strict view of a moral hierarchy to society. So all these things are wrapped up within it. Um, and so when we're talking about Christian nationalism, that's the expression of Christianity that we're, we're looking at. Um, and that's basically what, throughout this book and a lot of our work, what we're able to show um, has a really distinct influence on how Americans view democracy, how they view gender, sexuality, um, the Christian faith, uh, immigration, all these different things. 
I'm really excited uh, later on to talk about what kind of particular Christianity it is that is yeah. uh, Christian nationalism or is a part of Christian nationalism, as you, as you mentioned, because it does seem like it is a particular kind of Christianity, but something mm -hmm. that I'm not even necessarily familiar with, uh, which might be a little strange for people, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the book, you mentioned that the way that both of us really grew up was that yeah. we thought the greatest danger to Christianity wasn't Christian nationalism. It was secularism, right? Yeah. That, that right. the greatest threat, the greatest danger to Christianity was something outside of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And what you're arguing is actually, it's actually coming from within. The greatest threat, the greatest danger yeah. to Christianity is coming from within, obviously with Christian nationalism. But why is it that you think that so many of us were led to believe that the danger was coming from the outside rather than within? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of this comes back to what we know about how social groups function and how they work. So the best way to create a really strong in-group is to project and understand the boundaries against a really strong out-group. So the more that we know what we're against and who we're afraid of, the more likely we are to circle the wagons, um, to protect ourselves, to fall in line, right? And to look to leaders, to show us the way, to tell us what to do and what to think and, and to know, okay, we are, we are together in this. And that feeling of being embattled really brings a group together. And so I think for you know, those kind of political operatives who, you know, Christian nationalism goes back centuries. But when we're looking at our current context, um, we're really responding to the rise of the religious right, you mm -hmm. know, in the 70s in response to the social upheaval of the 60s. And so for those folks in that moment, they knew to engage those political operatives, to engage even white evangelicals as a voting block. They needed to help them see themselves as a voting block, as a group. And to do that, you had to tell them over and over, this is who you're afraid of. This is who's coming after you. This is what you need to be you know, threatened by. And when you do that, and when you say, look, you're going to lose access to power, um, then that group comes together. It gets in line. It says, okay, now what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? And I think that's really what, what happens. So I think in our experience growing up, uh, much of it was due to how, how social groups create a really strong in-group is to be able to project a, a very strong and threatening outgroup. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about like the current kind of examples of mm -hmm. Christian nationalism at some point. But before that, I kind of want to hear more of the history of Christian nationalism. Where did it begin? Uh, and especially, especially like kind of the more modern iteration of Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked a little bit ago about like the doctrine of discovery. And certainly yeah. that plays a part in the history of Christian nationalism. But is it, it, it isn't exactly like a direct line of what we're experiencing today. You know, I often hear people say like, you know, or at least argue that, you know, maybe like the religious right and the rise of the religious right in the 50s, mm -hmm. 60s and 70s is maybe a part of that. Uh, and that would maybe be some of the origins. But maybe you think it goes back even farther than that. But yeah, where would you say the modern iteration, what we understand to be Christian nationalism today, where did that begin? Where, what's its origin story? Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think the roots of of that reach back even before the U.S. was founded, like you said, some of these theologies being created um, to help kind of baptize this this moving towards power and marginalizing um, other outgroups, however those are defined. And the thing with Christian nationalism is that it has, um, you know, reformed and responded to different moments in history. But I think our current iteration, like you said, really is in response to, you know, the the latter half of the 20th century 
and the social upheaval of the 60s. So the gender sexual revolution, the civil rights movement was a big part. Mm -hmm. So the rise of the religious right then, I think, is what we're seeing, you know, the fruits of that 40 years later. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, with the election of Donald Trump, he was kind of the natural endpoint of much of that work. Like this is the purest distillation of, of kind of what this group was okay with. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when we look at Falwell and, and those leaders in the seventies, right, they're leaning on, you know, the Billy Graham and, and some of that, those folks from the fifties and they're leaning on folks from the 1920s. And mm -hmm. that is related to, you know, in the civil war period, much of what was happening. So it, you can really trace it backwards, but I do think that, this current moment iteration um, really is in, in relation to the rise of the religious right, which again was responding to um, the federal government changes around segregation, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea of we should be able to teach our kids. So <laughs> this is going to resonate with today, right? Parents need to have the right to teach their kids how they want. So you can't force us to desegregate our schools. We're just going to create Christian academies mm -hmm. that lo and behold are completely white. The gender and sexual revolution, the you know the ERA amendment, all of these things were a part of of fomenting this idea of we need to engage and fight back to defend what we see as a nation that was created for us and should be aligned with what we view as um, a Christian society. What's interesting, you saying you know saying all of that of like that's kind of where we see this beginning of this modern iteration of Christian nationalism starting in the '60s with a lot of the civil rights movement and segregation, all of that. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is you haven't mentioned Roe v. Wade, which <laughs> I tweeted a few days ago uh, and yeah. talked a little bit about. You know, there is a lot uh, a lot of agreement that the rise of Christian nationalism, the rise of the religious right, really was more in response to segregation in the civil rights movement mm -hmm. uh, rather than uh, Roe v. Wade starting in, obviously, like the early 70s. Yeah. And certainly a lot of people get ticked off about that. They don't want like their religious, uh, you know, their conservative religious uh, convictions to be really directly uh, connected to the, the segregation movement in the mm -hmm. 60s and, mm -hmm. the, you know, the opposition of the civil rights movement. But it certainly seems like there's a lot of good history to suggest that that was the case uh, and that that actually did predate Roe v. Wade. And then once they realized that that was probably going to fail, that this movement um, against the civil rights movement, that's when, you know, Roe v. Wade kind of enters the picture. And they mm -hmm. really obviously focus on that for a good 50 years and still do to this day. I just find that history really interesting. And, you know, when we talk when we're talking about uh, Christian nationalism, mm -hmm. Uh, at least in this book, it seems as if one of the things that's important is to recognize that I think what is implied here is a white Christian nationalism. Right. And again, with with that um, being kind of impl implied throughout this book, again, it really directly ties to some of those origins clearly being um, out of this racist conviction um, where it was, you know, very against segregation. Uh, or it was, it was very pro-segregation and mm -hmm. certainly against the civil rights movement. Uh, and so we see that white Christian nationalism from that point um, to where we're at today. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, in, in the book, it's really important too to highlight, and I try to show this, where when we're talking about Christian nationalism in the U.S., this religious nationalism, it really is tied to whiteness. And so calling it white Christian nationalism is important. And so when we're talking about whiteness, we're not talking about necessarily the skin color of the person who, you know, whole, you know, embraces Christian nationalism, but that Christian nationalism as a cultural framework um, is tied to and 
this idea of, of whiteness, where whiteness is this idea that, you know, society is structured in such a way that a particular group, and in this case, white Americans, tend to benefit most from all the benefits that that society offers. So different attitudes, beliefs, values, all these things move in such a way where, you know, white folks um, benefit more from it. And Christian nationalism, as we look through the years and especially recently, um, it tends to um, uphold those different systems that return as a whole, as a group, positive results for white Americans. So again, it isn't as though like every single white American does better than every other minority. But when we look at the group level, you know, white Americans have 13 to 15 times the wealth that any other minority group has. When we look at our criminal justice system, um, by and large, minorities, you know, are two times as likely to be on death row um, or to be um, incarcerated. As we look at maternal and child health, black mothers die two to three times more in childbirth and black babies die in the first year, you know, at a, at a factor higher than white babies. So when we're looking at these group level statistics, we can see that this society that we live in is racialized. It isn't equal. And so when we think through why that is, Christian nationalism as a cultural framework is one of those reasons that tends to obscure this ability to see that inequality and why it's there. Like, how did we get here? Um, mm -hmm. Because it, it creates explanations that this country was founded by God and the way that it works is God's design and it's up to individuals to do what they need to do. And all of those different things are a part of the story. And so when we're looking at Christian nationalism, it really is a white Christian nationalism. I want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 19th through the 21st, 2023 in Springfield, Missouri. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code MASONGODPOD, all caps, no spaces, you can receive $25 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. So that's a little bit about the history of kind of the modern iteration of Christian nationalism. Let's talk about some of the more recent examples that we have seen of this uh, white Christian nationalism in America. Can you talk about some of the maybe more overt examples you have seen over the last few years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been really interesting to watch because, you know, as we look at Donald Trump as a candidate, He's not the first Republican to use this rhetoric, right, of the U.S. as a Christian nation to, to say that we need to get back to that. But he was the first one that was willing to use this rhetoric really strongly. And then personally, as an individual, make really no effort to seem like a Christian, where other Republican candidates would at least say, yeah, I'm, you know, interested in this, or I think it's important for me personally. And so he really was the perfect test of the power of, of Christian nationalism, where it isn't about the person individually, it's about whether they're going to privilege this group and this group's mm. vision for society. And that's what he did. And for all the things about Trump that we could talk about, he is skilled at sensing what connects with an audience, right? So he just rambles for an hour, but he can sense like, okay, that line hit and he'll just use that. And you can see over the time as a, a candidate and then when he won and as president, he leans in more and more to that Christian nationalist rhetoric. And so I think that's one really 
um, obviously strong example. And we see some of this, not only rhetoric, but this term, right, fomenting in the, the conversation more and more till now we have, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, hey, I'm a Christian nationalist. Um, Republican Party needs to be the party of Christian nationalism, all of these things. So now kind of this desire to adopt the term and to say that, oh, we'll just redefine it and say it's a good thing. And so there's been a really interesting kind of change over the last couple of years even. But I think more and more we see candidates um, leaning into it explicitly. And in mm. the midterms in 2022, some of those folks didn't do well, like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, um, the lady running for governor, um, I forget her name, in, in Arizona who lost, they lost their races. So, you know, a candidate really leans into it. They might win their primary because usually only folks that vote in primaries are like super, super into it. But then when they go to the general, it doesn't do as well. But other folks that kind of sprinkle it in like seasoning, you know, they they did fine. They won their reelections. And so it'll be interesting to track. So we do see some of that. And probably, you know, one last example where we see this really kind of out front is the Reawaken America tour that uh, Michael Flynn and others are leading, where those are like literal political, religio-political revivals where they're constantly talking about, you know, this expression of Christianity and how it has to be brought back, you know, and given power and we need to bring the U.S. back to this. And so it really is, you know, spreading this Christian nationalist message across the U.S. and and not only with implications for democracy, but I think, too, for those folks that are there who then go back to congregations, implications for how they understand, you know, what it means to be a Christian. Um, and what that should look like in the public sphere. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot happening and a lot moving, but those are some of the examples that come to mind. Would you say that there's more of like an awareness now of Christian nationalism than there has been maybe in the past? Like, obviously, people like Falwell have been in politics for quite some time. It's not mm-hmm. like the strategies are new or anything like that yeah you know this has been has again been going around since the 60s 70s 80s so it's been going along for a while but would you say that like the the general public's awareness of how potent christian nationalism is and how much influence it actually does have in american politics uh do you think there's more of a general awareness of that now than there was 30 40 years ago because you know, as much as like a lot of the strategies, a lot of the rhetoric doesn't seem new to me. You know, I remember yeah. hearing this stuff back in the George Bush years. And but it yeah. just seems like now that and maybe it's just because of Trump. But there it's just seems like there is a full awareness, even from people who have like no relationship to Christianity at all. That like, right. oh, there like there is specifically a Christian type of nationalism that's going on. Uh, and mm. I don't know. It just seems like that to me from my like general sense but i have no data to back that up or anything so i'm curious like what your because you're an expert in this like what your sense of that is for the for the general public and their awareness of white white christian nationalism yeah no there's a couple of things so um prri they they gathered some data this past spring or i guess it was just early 2023 where they asked about general awareness of the term and most americans don't really have a deep understanding of that term haven't really heard about it so in that sense you know it is a term that for those of us that are you know online or just thinking about religion politics generally we're very aware but for most americans it isn't a term that they've necessarily heard of for those that have 
um, PRI found that they tend to have a negative view of it. So they understand that and see it as something that's generally kind of negative or bad. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, though, for those that are kind of, you know, in this space of religion, politics, reading or tracking kind of American Christianity, I think that that term has risen in, in folks knowing about it, hearing about it, because it has helped provide a framework for what we all saw and grew up with or that we saw generally. Or, you know, I've had folks come up to me and talk about that term or this book was helpful because it helped me make sense of like, you know, the last Thanksgiving around the table, like what I was hearing from these people and these folks, like, okay, that's what it is. It just provides this framework to slot in, you know, all these different messages and terms and values and symbols that before we're all kind of, you know, floating around and we were aware of, but now it's like, okay, I can see what this is and how it functions mm -hmm. and what it's doing in our culture, in our society, or, you know, among individuals. So I think in that sense, it provided kind of a, a framework that folks could then, yeah, understand or, or perceive their experiences through. So in that way, I think it has risen in just a general understanding of what it is. You mentioned, uh, or one of the arguments in your mm -hmm. book is that Christian nationalism betrays the gospel itself. And I've actually made like a similar argument in a YouTube video a while back. I think I released it sometime in this like last calendar year. But yeah, yeah I made a similar argument where I talked about how Christian nationalism really uses Christian language mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of political power, but it doesn't have like some sort of robust theology. Since to me, it's all just Christian language. It's all talk. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think like someone like Trump and even like James Lindsay are great examples of this, where it's people who clearly are not like Christian people. In fact, James Lindsay, I think, has been like outright that he's an atheist. Yeah, right. But they use that Christian language mm -hmm. in order, again, for the sake of this political power uh, for Christian nationalism. I'm really curious what you think about that as it, it, it sort of not only betrays the gospel, but in some way, shape or form, it doesn't even necessarily seem all that Christian other than just using Christian language. And this kind of gets to what you talked about be before about Christian nationalism using a particular form of Christianity. What I'm curious about is it doesn't even seem to be all that Christian in, mm. in, in one sense, it doesn't seem to be all that Christian. And so I'm really curious what you think about kind of that argument. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think a couple of things. So Christian nationalism, as we, or, you know, I define as a cultural framework can operate in a number of different ways. And, and my colleague Sam Perry has made this point too, in his work where it can be kind of a political tool, right? So when we're looking at James Lindsay or we're looking at Donald Trump, they sense that this, you know, this cultural framework can be used to benefit them, to bring folks to their side, right? And so they can use this language. So it doesn't really matter if they, you know, are atheist or whatever, they can use this language and it'll, it'll essentially, the people that need to hear it will hear it. They'll know what's being talked about and they will come and, and support you. So in that sense, I think that's true. And and so there it's, you know, really is just kind of a political tool and, and that's where it ends. But I think, too, there are many Americans and Christian Americans who, you know, assent to kind of the orthodox beliefs. But then when it comes to how they live out their Christian life or witness or whatever you want to call it, Christian nationalism in that point really is very Christian to them um, in, the, in the sense that these cultural beliefs that come with it that folks, you know, from outside that kind of walk of life would see like, you don't have to defend the second amendment to be a Christian. Like there's literally nothing about 
defending the second amendment that would, you know, and I think some of us would, who are more progressive would say the opposite, but like they see it as like, if we don't defend the second amendment, then we are turning our back on the Christian God. And so in that sense, I think it is very Christian, but it's just adding in a lot of this other cultural baggage to how they understand it. And so in that sense, I think, yeah, it really is for them very Christian. And so we have to understand it and see it as, again, that expression, that particular expression of Christianity is is very real. So just understanding too, and making the case that there are many expressions of Christianity. This is one, but it's particularly powerful and our history in the U.S., it's been particularly powerful and influential and it continues to be um, and understanding it on those terms. But yeah, I think for me then too, with my book and in aligning with what you had to say, I think that normatively, like moving beyond the data, right? If, if Christians are supposed to be about the flourishing of not only, you know, their group, but those outside um, their group, I think Christian nationalism is fundamentally opposed to that. And so we could make the normative claim that like that isn't necessarily following Christ. But I think for me, I tend to say, well, you know, they they have just as much of a right to say that this is Christianity as I do. But um, I just think they're wrong and they'll you know have to see that at some point we have to kind of push back against them however we can with levers of power or whatever else. But yeah, just to say that they're like outside the faith, we we probably can't do that either because again, there's cultural expressions that we have, mm-hmm. you know, that hold on to this as well. Yeah, I'm not really interested in making the argument on like whether or not these people are Christian or whatnot. Like that, yeah. that to me is an uninteresting debate. What yeah. I think is more interesting is how Christianity or Christian identity is used in these Christian nationalist circles. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting is generally Christian nationalist people tend to be more gatekeepy around like who's Christian, who's in, who's out. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, You know, especially growing up in white evangelicalism, like what it means to be a Christian is very gatekeepy. Like you have to, you know, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, all of that, right? (laughs) Yeah. What's interesting though is you have people like Donald Trump and and James Lindsay who Mm. are not participating in the Christian identity that most of these people tend to gatekeep around. So all of a sudden, when you have people that are able to get you access to political power, you are willing to lower those gates for them, Uh, even Mm. though that they aren't culturally participating in their institutions. You know, Trump, Trump never went to youth group. He didn't go to promise keepers. He, (laughs) he, you know, he didn't go to Liberty University. He didn't get married at 20 and, you know, have like 2.5 kids at 23. (laughs) Like he didn't participate in all the cultural pieces that makes Christian identity within these circles Mm, of how they understand Christian identity. So it's really interesting how they're willing to make exceptions for certain people, given the political access to power that they can get from these certain individuals. That to me is really interesting on how they're, how they think about Christian identity based on all of that. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what's so helpful about Christian nationalism is making sense of this fact that it really does come down to power and fear of who the other is. So if you have a person that can give you access to power, protect you from fear and threat of who we've defined as the other, we can, we can create all sorts of explanations, right? The kind of like Trump as, as a metaphor of, you know, a modern day kind of King Cyrus, you know, all these different things that we can read back into the Bible and and are willing to do because he'll provide access to power, protect us from what we see as what we should, you know, fear or be threatened by, 
yeah, use violence if we need to, to protect ourselves, all of these different things. So yeah, I think that's where the power of Christian nationalism really becomes apparent. What do you think the average person or like why the average person gets into Christian nationalism? Like, I understand why people like Trump get into it because of the rewards, not only Mm -hmm. that Christian nationalists get, but also that Trump gets out of that. But why do you think like the average just church going evangelical or whoever it is would become entrenched into the world of Christian nationalism? You know, I think about just the people I grew up with in South Dakota that I I don't know if they would, you know, self-identify as Christian nationalists, but they certainly play the part in, in all the things that we're talking about here. Yeah. Why would that average person who's just going to work nine to five every day yeah. get entrenched in that world when it really doesn't actually reward them with the political power that it would for someone like Trump? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, looking back at my own journey where, where you're born and where you grow up, it just kind of is the way the world is, right? It's not even something that anybody perceives around them. But this idea that if you're an American, you're Christian, and if you're a good Christian, you support America and whatever America decides to do, and its past is, you know, full of victory and triumph and God's blessing. And that is just the way the world is. And and very few things are in some of those bubbles that would help folks contradict that or raise questions in their mind. And so I think for most Americans, it, that narrative is just so widely accepted that it just gets handed down and accepted. And so I think that's a part of it. And then I think, too, there is, you know, kind of a political political project uh, in there as well, especially over the last 40 or 50 years, where if we're to be a good Christian, you have to vote the right way. You have to defend what we see as important in the public square. Um, and we were given tools of, of how to understand politics, what what are moral issues, and then what's just politics, right? So mm. being pro-life, quote unquote, which means anti-abortion. That is a moral issue. You have to vote a certain way if you're going to be a good Christian. But racial inequality, that's just politics, right? That isn't a moral issue. Um, That isn't a pro-life issue. That's just politics. And so being able to define what is what, I think, you know, that's part two of bringing people into this narrative and giving them the values and symbols that really make up Christian nationalism. Um, It really is so ubiquitous at this point that It's just how people see the world. And so even though it can cause them to vote against, you know, this isn't anything new. A lot of people point this out, but cause them to vote against their interests, Mm. right? Because they feel as though, well, capitalism and, you know, the, the, the ability of folks to be billionaires or whatever, that is God's will. That's just how it works. You know, you just got to work hard because someday I may do that when reality is really nobody is going to be able to do that. But it's just the way this world has been structured. But all of that has a history and is a part of this ongoing framework, right? Aligning it with this is how God designed it. This is what we need to do. Um, But that was all political projects at different points in history. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. 
attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You, you mentioned a while back here in this conversation that Trump seems to be this like ultimate manifestation of yeah. what this trajectory of white Christian nationalism has been over the last mm. several decades. Yeah. And I'm curious about like why you think that is and what happens after Trump, right? Mm. Like once you get to this sort of savior of white Christian nationalism, yeah. what happens when that savior, uh, you know, maybe, you know, at some point Trump's going to die or Trump, you know, whatever, mm. like at some point you lose that savior. What happens to the movement after that? So I'm really curious, like, yeah not only why you think Trump is sort of this ultimate manifestation of white Christian nationalism, but also what happens to white Christian nationalism after you lose a leader like him? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, he, and this is a point too, that like um, Kristen Dumay makes in her book, uh, Jesus and John Wayne and others have too, where, you know, this idea of Trump as the natural endpoint um, with, with this social movement and, and the politics that were embraced, it really was always about, power and access to power. And there were moments where you could kind of cloak it in a veneer of taking the high road, right? We need to be moral people, da, 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 right? And so one great data point on this is asking basically evangelical Christians and, and many Americans, but the, the difference with evangelical Christians was, was so apparent. You know, does a leader have to be moral to be president? And so a couple of decades ago, 70% of evangelicals said, yes, you have to be a moral person if you're going to be president and lead, um, because really they were responding to the Bill Clinton years and just all that happened there, right? This guy is immoral. He should not be leading this nation. And then that same question was asked in the last couple of years when Trump was on the scene, and it literally flipped. Now only 30% of evangelical Christians said you need to be moral to be president. 70% disagreed now. So there was a complete setting aside of what was viewed as, you know, we got to have moral leaders. Now it was, no, we need leaders who are going to protect us and our interests. And so Trump, I think, is that perfect distillation because Christian nationalism is about power and access to power. And if a leader is willing to give that, all bets are off, right? Like we we will forgive whatever. We'll say we don't need a pastor in chief, right? We, we just need a strong leader. Um, we need somebody willing to punch the bully in the mouth, right? So I'm just quoting what these kind of famous pastors and religious leaders have said about Trump. Um, so I think that's why he's the perfect distillation. Now, what happens after that is really difficult to tell. Cause I think he has really reshaped, especially on the right, um, how politics works and what it means. And there's so little now left that is truly conservative, right? It, it, it really isn't conserving anything. Like it's willing to burn down whatever to gain access to power. <clears throat> and so you know, I think while Trump will disappear, Trumpism is here to stay. Um, and it will just take like a concerted effort um, for many Americans to push back against this desire to, you know, ignore reality, ignore 
truth and, and fact um, and to live kind of in this conspiratorial um, bubble, you know, all those things are, are with us. And so putting that back, I don't think that's possible, but it'll have to just lose um, enough politically to then, you know, turn, turn away those folks that have embraced it. So, yeah, I think his style is, is going to be with us for decades. Um, what, you know, obviously he won't be, but I think that style of politics is here. Like you mentioned, you know, you, a lot of these, uh, white Christian nationalists don't think that a president has to be moral anymore. But again, mm-hmm. like I've kind of mentioned before, they don't even, a president even doesn't even have to necessarily have to be all that Christian. No. Uh-uh. And I, again, I find that so fascinating that the, the, this movement of, it did seem like maybe 30, 40 years ago, if you were to be somebody that was big in the religious right world, you at least had to know, like you had to talk the talk. You had to graduate from Dallas, you know, theological <laughs> seminary or something like that. Like you had to uh, like demonstrate your qualifications of w- how Christian you were. Right. Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't even matter. That to me seems to be a really fast. Uh, may- maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe there have been plenty of examples yeah. of that over the last 50, 60 years of, uh, of leaders within this religious right, Christian nationalist movement that didn't necessarily have to be all that Christian. But this, yeah. it, it does, at least from my little understanding of it, seems to be like a, a very jarring difference um, yeah. over the last 50, 60 years uh, and, and has set a precedent. And I find that really, really fascinating of how that will play out, given the fact that somebody doesn't necessarily have to be all that culturally Christian. They can say two Corinthians and and people don't shake their heads about that. Like, yeah. But 60 years ago, if some, you know, if Falwell said that, people would be like, wait, that who, like, are you actually even a Christian? Like it, yeah. that suspicion has totally gone away. And I find that really fascinating. Uh, anyway, I, I'm just like, so, yeah. so focused in on that point. I find yeah. that so fascinating <laughs> that somebody doesn't even have to be participating all that culturally with yeah. Christianity in order to be a leader within yeah. Christian nationalism. Well, I think some of the seeds of that were sown right with the religious right turning on Jimmy Carter and moving to Ronald Reagan. So he, you know, Ronald Reagan, you know, famously was divorced and, you know, was this movie star, but they saw in him, you know, somebody that could kind of get people excited and was willing to listen to them. And he ultimately didn't deliver everything they wanted, but I think that was like that first move in that direction. Right. And so then that just continued on to where Trump is kind of this flowering of the seeds that were planted even back then. Um, So it was always kind of there. It's just that now it became just distilled and very apparent um, and revealed in that sense. I interviewed Isaac uh, Sharp a few months ago about his book, The Other Evangelicals. Yeah. Uh, and I know you're uh, very well aware of that book. Great, great book. One of the things that, and I don't remember if I like left it in the interview, but at one point, Isaac and I talked a little bit about his optimism or pessimism of yeah. white evangelicalism in particular yeah. and whether or not he thinks evangelicalism can actually be reformed given its history of clearly gatekeeping people that they deem aren't evangelicals, even if there are people that say they're still evangelical or whatnot. Yeah. With that book in mind and also reading your book, one of the questions I keep like having in my mind is Mm. specifically white evangelicalism. Does it inevitably lead to something like Christian nationalism? Like, does it just it's theology, it's politics, what it stands for? Will it just ultimately lead to it, whether or not it's at that point yet for somebody? But at some point, it does seem like if you're committed enough to be a white evangelical, 
maybe it will inevitably lead you to Christian nationalism. I'm really curious, like what you think about that. Yeah, no, I think I really go back and forth where I do think, you know, institutionally white evangelicalism, whether that can be reformed, I have a lot of doubts because so much is wrapped up, so much money and power and influence is wrapped up in maintaining essentially white Christian nationalism. And so I don't know that those can be reformed or turned back. Um, the people in seats of power there aren't aren't going to reform it because then a lot of that influence and power leaves. But I think there are, you know, at the individual level, especially among younger folks who identify as evangelical or growing up in those spaces, I think it doesn't necessarily lead to embracing Christian nationalism. I think the the possibility is much higher, right? If you're in those spaces, because that's where it's fomented and passed along and in these congregations. But I do think young folks with, you know, as they go to college and as they interact with other groups, they want to hold on to, um, you know, an expression of the faith, but they're very wary or they really, you know, outright reject this um, gatekeeping desire of kind of institutional white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism that um, turns them against people that they, again, were taught to love or care for, or, you know, see as a neighbor. Um, they really sense that hypocrisy in, in many senses. So I, I'm hopeful for at the individual level, there there can be renewal, you know, within this broader religious tradition. But I think institutionally and in those spaces, I think I'm much more cynical of of whether there really is anything that can can move beyond or outside of it. Um, I, I hope so, but I'm really doubtful most days. And so I think that's kind of the distinction I would make. Yeah. Then it's just a question of how do we, you know, keep pushing along or if we even identify, or if I even identify if, as evangelical, or I'm, you know, identified outside the group because I critique Christian nationalism, who knows? Um, and whether that even matters, I don't know. But yeah, I think among individuals, it's not necessary necessarily the case. But yeah, among organizations, institutions, I, I don't know that it it can be turned back. Mm-hmm. That generational piece is really interesting to me. Yeah, you know, we see this this rise of Christian nationalism at a obviously national level. And, uh, you know, certainly it seems like a lot of the leaders are obviously like lots of boomers, maybe some Gen Xers. <laughs> yeah. And and, and uh, certainly right now, like the, their main focus seems to be on LGBTQ people, specifically trans people. Right. Mm-hmm. But even among uh, like the data I've seen is the younger generations of people who identify as evangelicals are becoming more and more accepting of LGBTQ people. Right. Uh, and that's one particular issue among many other issues within that world. Do you sense that there would be some sort of shift or division that happens mm-hmm. between the the Christian nationalist evangelicals as people get older? Or is there some sort of generational divide where it's like all these Christian nationalists, like once they die, then they die out. And like the the newer, more accepting younger generations of evangelicals obviously like eventually get in power or whatever. Like, I'm just yeah. really curious how that generational piece, uh, how do you take that account into account with with? Christian nationalism. Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at it. So one way we do see um, kind of a a demographic endpoint because Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism are significantly older than those that maybe are just sympathetic to it or won't oppose it or those that resist or reject it. So it gets younger as you move down the line, right? Those that are most opposed, the mean age is much lower than those that embrace it really strongly. So there is going to be a demographic replacement, right? As those folks die out, 
they won't necessarily be replaced automatically, or at least we don't know. So then that leads to the other question is as young people age, do they become more likely to then start embracing it more strongly, right? Or do they kind of maintain similar beliefs to what they had? Because if they don't move towards it more strongly, then we will see kind of this replacement and folks dying out. I think the the answer with all social science is usually both and. I think there's going to be parts of that where as young people you know, get married and get into these congregations and get into the institutions, they probably do start to embrace it more strongly or can, um, and then others won't. But we do find that this number of Americans that strongly embrace it is shrinking some. But what's happening is that because they're shrinking, that identity of we are those that embrace this idea of a Christian nation becomes even more salient. So this is how they really understand themselves. And that's, I think, what makes them, you know, really motivated to get out and vote and to really push for what they want because they see themselves as the remnant. And so I think that's what continues to make it so relevant. And even though it's getting smaller, even though it's a lot of older folks and, and there could be demographic replacement going on, it'll still be a kind of a powerful vocal minority. And, and so we'll have to see. But my hope is that, and I think it's true that folks that have had more open, you know, views towards LGBTQ um, Americans, they tend to not walk that back just because they get older, um, mm-hmm. maybe a little, but it isn't wholesale like that. That demographic shift is, I think, here to stay. Yeah, it does seem like specifically LGBTQ is such a massive sociological shift yeah. that is really fairly, I would say, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it is a massive shift that has happened. It is. Yeah. That sociological shift and how it's even translated into more conservative Christian type of folks like evangelicals. It's true. Uh, and that seems pretty unprecedented. Like there, yeah. there aren't too many other things like that throughout history that have have that kind of significance. Yeah. When I think how fast it switched too. Right. And it will, yeah. so it'll be really curious to see like how that will play out. 50 years from now as you know it it will be really fascinating i think yeah for sure no i think you're right that there will probably be some like very strong vocal minority but uh but yeah i I, it does seem like even among evangelicals like this is it's gonna be really interesting how like the gatekeepers play this out because they might lose half of their congregations at some point uh, in the next 25 years yeah no i think it's moving that way and and that's the thing too like not only has the switch been so quick. So when we look at national data, I mean, from early 2000s, you know, 15 years later, like the number of Americans that em- embraced, um, you know, legalization of same-sex marriage, like over doubled, like that was so fast. But then when we look even among evangelical Protestants, or we look even among Americans who strongly embrace Christian nationalism, over a decade, their numbers doubled. Right. So they're liberalizing their views as well, just not as quick as the general public, but they're still liberalizing. So mm-hmm. it is a broad scale change. Um, it's happening at different speeds, but everybody is liberalizing um, in this direction. So, yeah, it will be fascinating to track. You mentioned uh, in the book that there are many Christians who are confronting Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Who are some of these folks and like what is the work that they're doing that's confronting Christian nationalism? Yeah. Yeah. So in the book too, I wanted to highlight like really to try and make the case that not only does Christian nationalism betray the gospel, but that there are 
multitude of expressions of Christianity that are already doing this work of confronting and embracing a, a you know, a, a vision of the gospel that is for the common good and the flourishing of all people. And so I try to highlight some of those examples. Um, and what I'm excited to see too, is that, you know, as different religious groups or people are creative, that they'll find, you know, ways that fit their particular situation, right? And and come up with ways that we can push back or, or that we can confront Christian nationalism in our communities. And so, you know, a couple examples, um, one is of a, a childhood friend who started a, a nonprofit that essentially helped refugees coming to their her community just connect with community resources, right? And that's really what it's focused on. And she was working with a middle-aged woman who kept trying to take the driver's test, but um, kept failing. And so it wasn't for lack of effort or anything. And while the test was offered in different languages and in this um, this woman's native language, the manual was only offered in English. So she could never mm. study, you know, in mm. her own language. So there was this clear, you know, blockage. And so, you know, in the book, I, I tell the story and try and point out that this nonprofit could have worked to train every single person, you know, or essentially teach them English so that they could then study the manual and then take the test and pass it. But what they did is they kind of looked at, well, what's causing the problem? What's the blockage? Well, the manual should be in different languages. So they ended up suing the state um, along with the ACLU to say, hey, this manual is should be offered in different languages, not just the test. And the state agreed. And so now they offer it in different languages. And so she was able to um, accept this woman where she was and then see, well, how could she lift up the marginalized so that they have access to the benefits of the society? It isn't just like trying to keep them out or trying to get them to say the sinner's prayer, but like, look at how they're being marginalized and what can we do? And that is an expression of, I think, a gospel that is for the common good. Um, there's another group, uh, a, a church in a community that, you know, was working through racial injustice, you know, post George Floyd and, and saw that in their denomination, there was this kind of movement, you know, decades ago to, to uh, move towards racial justice, but that just fizzled out. They didn't end up doing anything. So this congregation was like, you know what, we are going to learn about this. And they did. And then they said, let's just gather money and kind of help create this community um, group of leaders in the African-American community in their neighborhoods or in their, in their community. We're just going to give them the money no expectation of what they'll do with it or to report back, but we just need to take this one step of repair, you know, and gathering funds and giving it to them because of what's been taken, you know, historically. So that's what they did. And there were other congregations that were kind of, you know, asking about it, like, Hey, we could be a part of it too. And it became apparent to this group, like these folks were like, well, how it will be spent or how will they report back? And they're like, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is to give up control of, you know, these funds of our resources. That's what we need to do. That's an expression of the gospel. Mm. And so that's what they did. And so it really taught them. And so throughout the book, just trying to highlight some of those examples of how people were in their situation and recognizing need in their connection to the marginalized, right? To gain proximity to these groups and listen and understand, okay, this is where they're hurting. This is what they need. Now, how can we leverage what we have or our privilege to help lift them up. And so, yeah, those are just two of the examples, but I think that's some of the work that's taking place that is helpful, right? That we need to move towards um, to create, yeah, communities and um, a society where 
um, one group isn't always um, benefiting at the expense of others. I love that, like the way that you're describing this is the best way to just resist Christian nationalism is like do good in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Which like, I think exposes a little bit of the insidious nature of Christian nationalism that it's just like simply evil. And so the way to resist it is just do good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, for me growing up, you know, white, male, straight, Protestant, um, the world is just kind of like formed for me. Right. And so doors open that I never knew could be close for anybody else. And so as I listen to these voices and these experiences, my hope is that Christians would be moved with empathy toward them. And yeah, then do good. Like how, how can we help them have the same rights and benefits that I've always enjoyed, right? That have been there for me. And so in that sense, it really is that simple. And then it gets complicated, but the idea, right, is looking at those systems, right? Not just individuals, but there are systems that are keeping mm-hmm. groups and communities down. So how can we, we how can we reform them? Mm-hmm. How do you hope American idolatry inspires and liberates its readers? Yeah, I think my hope really is that it would reach folks that, you know, th- there's some Americans that strongly embrace Christian nationalism, true believers, you know, I, I doubt that they're going to change their minds on a book. But I think there's a lot of American Christians who maybe just stay silent, right? When folks are saying like, we need to put in God we trust in all the schools, or we need to ensure that we can, um, you know, make sure our Christian principles are paramount. And and they won't necessarily, you know, do that vocally, but a lot of Americans will just kind of stay quiet with it and not really see how that affects religious minorities or secular Americans or racial and ethnic minorities. So my hope is that some of those folks might read this book and then and recognize where they're at on this journey. Um, and that I haven't arrived, that I have still more to learn, still more to understand about how even where I'm at today might say or believe things that still privilege Christianity in, in some way that could harm others. And so to see themselves as on a journey, that this is a part of that journey and to give them maybe some tools to understand where they came from or where to go next, but that it isn't something that we can like amputate, like, mm-hmm. okay, we took care of Christian nationalism, but that again, it's like flossing, right? Like we do it every day and we have to do it to stay healthy. We have to just continue to look to see how maybe, you know, we're privileging a particular expression of Christianity or not moving towards a world where um, all can participate and have an equal voice, those types mm-hmm. of things. So yeah, I think just recognizing the journey and not feeling ashamed at where you're at, but just making the decision to now start moving in a, in a, in a direction towards flourishing. Mm -hmm. I've heard anti-white supremacy kind of be described in the same way where it's a, it's a daily practice. And so I think anti-Christian nationalism is just another, just another one of those things (laughs) we're have to add to our, uh, our skincare routine. Yeah, totally. Well, that, and then too, that we can do together, right? So appreciating like your voice and others where, we're a part of a broader community, right? And we can disagree on some stuff, but we can agree that crushing some of these groups or or harming them in this way um, is not flourishing, is not, you know, uh, an expression of of the gospel that we would hopefully want. So yeah, just we're on a journey and that there are others journeying with us, I think is what gives me hope. Love it. Uh, last question, Andrew, yeah. how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, so I'm on um, social media, so X or Twitter, or whatever, um, mm-hmm. on there and Instagram, and 
Yeah, I'm actually working with um, Brad Onishi. So the Straight mm-hmm. White American Jesus podcast, he just started a broader um, podcast group. And so I'm creating a like a limited series just about Christian nationalism and the threat to oh. democracy, the threat to the gospel. Um, and so that'll be coming out in a couple weeks. So folks can look for that. But yeah, on social media, that's where I mostly stay engaged. So yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for writing the book. It was great and wonderful. And uh, yeah, loved love chatting more about it. Yeah. Thanks so much. If you would like to connect with Andrew and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Mm -hmm.